You're listening to the Modern Web Podcast. For more podcasts, videos, and events, find us online at modern-web.org or follow us on Twitter at modern.web. That's M-O-D-E-R-N-D-O-T-W-E-B. Hello, and welcome to the Modern Web Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay Wardell, software engineer at this.labs. With me today is special guest Richard Feldman. Richard is head of technology at No Red Inc., and author of Elm in Action, which is an awesome book. For those who are watching the video, I'm holding up my copy right now. Uh, Our sponsor today is Kendo React. Kendo React is a professional UI and data visualization component library designed and built from the ground up specifically for React. Kendo React can augment any existing UI stack. It's 90 plus feature rich components and advanced functionality make it the perfect suite to standardize on and remove much of the complexity of working with multiple UI solutions. So Richard, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Um, before we begin, I just want to make sure everyone's aware. If you haven't heard me say this before, Elm is my favorite programming language. Um, <laughs> Same. And, and I'm very excited to get to talk to you about it today and share it with, uh, with more people who might not have heard of it yet. Awesome. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. So just real quick before we dive into Elm, I want to know a little bit more about you. Uh, so how did, how did you get into programming and how did you get involved? I mean, this, this is kind of the beginning and the end questions. How did you get into programming? How did you get involved in Elm? Sure. Um, so how did I get into programming? Uh, so when I was really young, I always used to like to make games. And when I say make games, I mean not computer games or video games specifically, but just like board games, role-playing games, whatever. Um, and I always really wanted to be able to make computer games. Uh, and so long story short, uh, I was sort of pestering my dad to be like, hey, sign me up for a course on you know how to make video games. Uh, but this is like you know before the internet, and he was like, "How about if I get you a book?" So he got me a book on learning basic, and I just totally ignored it um, until eventually I got in. I got a bad grade on a math test. And my dad was like, "That's it, no more computer for a while." And I was like, uh, "What if I use the computer to read this book you bought me all those months ago uh, about programming?" He's like, "Okay, fine, you can use it for that." So I was like, "Ha ha, uh, <laughs> I tricked you! I'll, I'll be able- yeah, exactly." Um, and so I started. At, uh, learning basic uh, from that book and just totally fell in love with it and uh, started making really terrible games in it. And then eventually in Visual Basic, making more terrible games. And then eventually uh, sort of got more into programming for its own sake and made a career out of it and all that good stuff. And um, never really ended up trying to make a career in games, to be honest, largely because in college, I knew someone who went down that career path and she told me about what the sort of hours are like and the burnout is like, and it didn't sound like fun. Um, but, uh, so the way that I got into Elm was actually, um, so back in 20, uh, when was this 2012 ish? I had a coworker, uh, named Deech. Uh, he's D E E C H on Twitter. Um, and he was always telling me about Haskell. We used to, we worked together when I lived in St. Louis and, um, we used to go to lunch together and talk about programming languages and stuff. Uh, and he really opened my eyes to a lot of things. Um, especially about functional programming. And so he was a big fan of Haskell and he was always telling me like, hey, you got to try Haskell. Um, and uh, I was kind of a front-end guy at the time. I was focused on front, like, front-end web stuff and I didn't really know about, um, well, it's not, it's not so much that I didn't know about back-end, but more that like I, I was more interested in front-end. But I didn't know of any languages that were sort of Haskell-like, but for the front-end, except for this language called Roy, which ended up not getting finished, um, Brian McKenna's project. Uh, and so I was really excited about PureScript when I found out about that because it seemed like it was uh, 
sort of like everything that I, I wanted. It was like a Haskell-like language for the front end. Um, but unfortunately, between when Deech had told me about Haskell and I'd been sort of waiting for something like this to come along, and when uh, PureScript sort of came up on my radar, um, React had come out, and I'd try that and really, really liked this like virtual DOM declarative rendering approach. And PureScript at first did not, like right out the gates, have support for a virtual DOM sort of solution like that. Um, Elm already existed at this point, but if you went to Elm's homepage, <clears throat> at the time, it was all about games. It was like 2D rendering, 3D rendering, stuff like that. Um, so I, I was aware of Elm, but I was like, well, but you know, I already kind of decided that I wasn't going to do games. So this wasn't like, you know, I wasn't really the target audience for this. Um, so I didn't really look very far into it. Uh, so while waiting for PureScript to, to get a virtual DOM uh, sort of solution. Uh, I was actually the sort of like cheerleading in the comments for some of the early like PureScript React things. Like I was like, I don't understand this language well enough to help out, but I, I'm really excited for when, <laughs> for when you make this happen. Um, uh, while I was waiting for that to happen, this blog post comes out called Blazing Fast HTML and Elm. And it was about sort of uh, how Elm's like, uh, first of all, now had a virtual DOM library, um, but it was sort of like a first class thing in the language. It wasn't just like a, you know, a third-party add-on, and the benchmarks were really, really impressive. It was um, like being faster than React. It was faster than uh, like all of the like Angular, all the different uh, like well-known libraries at the time. Um, and I was like, wow, this this seems like it checks all my boxes. It's like a pure functional programming language like Haskell. It's got full type inference, you know, uh, everything. Um, and and now it's also got a, a React-style virtual DOM. So I decided to go and. Uh, I, I looked at to do MVC and just sort of like hacked on it <laughs> for a while until I sort of converted it into a, a side project. Um, and I just totally fell in love with it. And it, it really, uh, it was, and at first I thought I was the only one who would ever feel this way about it, but I've now talked to enough people in the Elm community who've had similar experiences that I, I found that I've, I'm not as unique as I thought I was in having this feeling, but it really sort of reinvigorated my love of programming. Like, I mean, I really, it felt like I was a kid again doing like visual basic, like I can make UIs. Oh my God, this is amazing. Um, and, uh, and and largely that was because of the experience that I still have with Elm today, which is um, I would make all these dramatic changes to my code. And after I would make them, no matter how dramatic they were, like once it compiled again and I got through all the compiler errors, it would just work again. And it like, even if I had zero tests, it was just totally mind blowing. Um, <clears throat> And that just gave me this unbelievable confidence to just make changes and make tweaks to stuff. So uh, that was that was 2014, and then I just got more and more involved in the community and wrote this book. And now I've done a beginner course on front end masters and an advanced Elm course on front end masters. Um, and uh, yeah, <laughs> lots of different Elm things, and written some libraries and, and so forth. Yeah, I think one one of one of the things I really appreciate about your voice is that you you are very open about your 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 joy in using Elm. Oh yeah, and wanting to share that with people. I remember when I was first getting into Elm, uh, I'd find your talks. I'd find you know you and Evan in particular, but I, I really enjoyed listening to your talks and just going over how functional programming works and why it makes sense, and going over how to do the different concepts in Elm. That's uh, one of the reasons I enjoy your book as well. Is just it's very clear, it makes everything make sense. And that's one of the things I like about functional programming as well, and just in general, is it helps make sense of code, it makes sense of the applications. Um, yeah, I, I, that's, I, that's what I found. <laughs> yeah, I, I had, a, a, in my experience in finding Elm, before we get into what Elm is, 
talk about it. Uh, I have this side project that I'm continually refactoring and, and switching into different languages and frameworks to, to try and learn them. Mm-hmm. So I started it in React so I could learn React. Uh, I was coming to React as a Vue developer already. Mm-hmm. And then I switched it into pure TypeScript so that I could run it in a CLI. Hmm. And then I switched it into Svelte and then I switched it into the, and you know, I just kept playing wow. with it, trying, trying to find the right fit. And for context, this is a, a, a turn-based strategy game on a, on a nine by nine grid uh, with an AI that's moving pieces around and okay. some level of complexity. Um, and I, what I was finding was it's really hard to manage all that complexity in JavaScript just in general. So I kept refactoring hmm. it, trying to find the best way to do it. Um, and I was like, you know what? I found this Elm programming language. This is like <laughs> 2018, 2019, somewhere in there. Like I found this Elm language and that looks really cool. Yeah. Wow, this is different. I can't do it yet. Uh, <laughs> and, and I kept coming back to it. I was like, all I, the two things that I absolutely need to do is random numbers and iterate over a list. How do I do these two things? And once I figured it out, it just clicked. Yeah. And, and I was able to refactor the entire game into Elm and now I have a, I'm having a hard time moving it out of Elm because Elm is so nice to work with. <laughs> I, I had that same experience you did with the, uh, the making refactoring so nice uh, with the yeah. compiler. Uh, there was this feature I added, it doesn't matter what it is, but I, there was this feature, it was fairly complex. And I started at one end of the code and I just worked my way through the errors and then it just worked and it yeah. was magical. And I would never have been able to do that in straight JavaScript. It, it would have been too much complexity to keep in my head at once. Yeah, we have a, a a feature at work. So at work, like our whole front end is in Elm now. We um we we started uh, we used to use React um back until like 2015. We started using Elm, and it just kind of took over our, our front end. We didn't plan to switch everything to Elm. It just kind of happened. Um, so now we have what is it like 400,000 lines of Elm code uh, in production. And um, one of my coworkers commented on this. Uh, this big feature that we have. It's like uh, a really elaborate, like complicated system. And like, th- it's designed so that the UI doesn't feel that complicated, but there's a lot of machinery going on behind the scenes to make it feel simple, um, to create the illusion of simplicity, I guess. Uh, and it's really central to to the application. Um, and somebody was commenting like, can, can you imagine how much harder this would be is, if we were not using Elm, like if we were using JavaScript or TypeScript and he's like, "Oh, it's very easy. We just would not have this feature. It's not, <laughs> it's not conceivable right? that we would successfully implement it without help." Uh, and I was like, "Huh? Yeah, I, I guess I can kind of see that." <laughs> yeah. So, so at this point, we've kind of talked up Elm and made it sound really exciting. Would you mind explaining a bit what Elm is? Yeah, sure. Um, so Elm is a programming language. Um, uh, a lot of people sort of lump it together uh, as like a framework, like a JavaScript framework. Um, but it's, uh, I think the reason that people do that is because it sort of uh, sits in that same place as far as like what you can use it for. So Elm covers things like rendering. So like, like uh, you know, you would find from React or Vue or Angular um, and it covers state management, like something you might find from Redux or um, MobX or, you know, whatever state management system you wanna use or hooks. Um, but it is a separate programming language, like very concretely, like Elm is not JavaScript. In fact, Elm has 
nothing to do with JavaScript as a language. They're just totally different programming languages. Um, Elm compiles to JavaScript. So once you're done writing your Elm code, what you get out is a compiled.js file. But that's kind of in the same way that like once you're done writing TypeScript, what you actually get out and give to the browser is a .js file. Um, the difference is that TypeScript is you know, very much coupled to JavaScript. And when you're writing TypeScript, like you need to know JavaScript in order to write TypeScript. Um, in Elm, you don't need to know JavaScript at all to write an Elm program. You could be completely oblivious. You could have no idea what JavaScript is and still write an Elm program. The only uh, feature of Elm that you would not be able to use if you didn't know JavaScript is, of course, that Elm does have JavaScript interop um, so that you can make use of you know, existing JavaScript libraries. Or the most common way that people use JavaScript interop in Elm is when they're incrementally introducing it to an existing JavaScript code base because like, they want to try out a little bit of Elm and, and see if they like it uh, before fully committing to it, which is exactly what we did and what most, most companies that uh, we talked to that um, that successfully adopt Elm, they do it incrementally, just like one small, really low risk project. So it's not a big investment. And if it doesn't work out, they can always you know, scrap it. Um, but they usually end up liking it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, so uh, it's it's a, a functional programming language. Um, that is to say, like, it's not object oriented. Uh, it doesn't have a concept of objects. It doesn't have a concept of classes. Uh, it's all just based on functional programming concepts. So functional programming, the definition I like to give is that functional programming is about two things. It's about avoiding mutation, and it's about avoiding side effects. Uh, and programming in a functional style means using as little mutation as possible and as few side effects as possible. So in Elm, uh, all functions are pure, which means that if you call the function, giving it the same arguments, it's guaranteed to return the same uh, return value no matter what. And also, uh, it won't perform any side effects just from calling it. So there, of course, there are ways to perform effects in Elm. It's just uh, using what we call managed effects rather than side effects. So an example of this would be, um, like in JavaScript, oftentimes you'll call a function and it'll return a promise. And usually what that promise means is that it says, okay, well, we're gonna do some sort of asynchronous effect, like maybe doing an HTTP request, um, but that's gonna happen as soon as you call the function. So in contrast, in Elm, you might have a same function that returns a task, which is kind of like a promise in terms of you can chain them together in, in the same way that you can chain promises together. The difference being that when you call the function, uh, it doesn't actually run the HTTP request right when you call the function. Instead, that task is sort of a description of like what you want done. It's like a description saying, oh, I, I want an HTTP request to get run. And after you're done chaining all your tasks together, uh, you sort of hand them off to the Elm runtime using this uh, way that we won't get into. But um, so, uh, and then it'll take care of like running the effect and handling all the things that happen afterwards. So in the end, your code ends up like resembling in a lot of ways, like you know, promise code where you have like a bunch of stuff chained together. Although I, personally, I think tasks are more ergonomic than promises, but I guess uh, that's another discussion. But um, <laughs> the uh, but the nice upside of this is that the dependencies between your functions are really, really clear because all basically you can think of it in terms of um, it's as if Elm only has const and not var or let. So uh, everything is a constant. And also all values are immutable, meaning that uh, you cannot mutate them in place. You can't change them. Uh, all you can do is sort of like make new versions of them. Um, when I say it like that, you might be surprised that Elm's really good at benchmarks. And actually like, if you look at even independent benchmarks, like the, the JS frameworks benchmark, um, Elm is like really, really, if not number one, it's like, very close to number one and like uh, almost across the board in those benchmarks, um, despite all this immutability, because it has a number of performance tricks that it does. Um, uh, 
And then uh, the functions don't have side effects because you have things like task rather than you know things like promise. Um, so putting all these things together, that's really what gives you this really nice, uh, well, that plus the, the compiler um, and, the, and the type checking system um, gives you this really nice like refactorability. Uh, we also haven't really talked about this, but the other nice, really nice thing about Elm is that it's, I would say the gold standard in terms of like compiler helpfulness, like uh, whenever other compilers like Rust, for example, um, is, is now known for having really nice error messages. And if you read the blog posts where they introduced nicer error messages, they're basically like, we're trying to make this be more like Elm. Uh, that's like what we're aiming for because they're kind of the best at it. Um, uh, which is actually funny because I, I think that history is lost on some people because Rust is like a much more widely known programming language. Right, right, yeah. Um, so I've talked to a number of people who are like, oh yeah, Rust, Rust is like really the best error messages. I was like, have you used Elm? They're like, oh, what's Elm? <laughs> so <laughs> they, don't, they don't know where the good error messages came from. But yeah, I mean, Evan Shaflicki who made Elm um, really, I think like advanced the state of the art for how nice a compiler, like how friendly and, and helpful a compiler um, can be in terms of not just how the errors are presented, but also just like the amount of context they give you um, to help you figure and like suggestions. Uh, like they'll often have like tips with like a link to like a section of the website that explains the concept, you know, behind like why this particular problem is happening. Um, just really, really helpful. Uh, we found that really helpful. Like, so when we, um, Oh yeah, by the way, we're hiring. Uh, I always have to mention that. <laughs> uh, and whenever whenever we have someone start who doesn't know Elm, we found that um, it's actually like a lot easier to ramp them up than for example, like our backend, um, well, historically it's been Ruby, but uh, now it's increasingly Haskell. In fact, most of our traffic is now going through Haskell, um, but by volume, we still have more lines of Ruby code because it's like, there's a lot of legacy code there. Um, we actually hired someone straight out of a coding bootcamp and, um, Early on, she was learning Elm and she was learning Ruby because the Python, uh, sorry, the bootcamp she'd gone through was Python. Um, she wasn't uh, like familiar with either Elm or Ruby. And uh, after like her first week, she'd gotten a little bit of exposure to Elm and a little bit of exposure to Ruby. And uh, her manager was asking like, hey, um, let's, you know, now that you've gotten a little bit of exposure to both, why don't you focus on, you know, tasks that are either on the front end or on the back end so you can sort of like get more expertise in one of those two areas. And her comment was, okay, I'm going to stick with Elm because that's easier um, than Ruby, right? <laughs> Which is like a famously, you know, user-friendly, nice right. uh, programming language. Um, but the big difference there is that with Ruby, if, if you're learning it from, you know, uh, from scratch, like even though your coworkers know both of them, like with Elm, you don't need as much help from the people around you because the compiler is giving you so much help and so much feedback that as a beginner, it's just, it's just an amazing tool. Um, and that that doesn't stop being helpful, you know, when you're an expert. Like I still lean on the compiler a lot, <laughs> even as someone who's been using it for many years now. Yeah, I, I feel like the the Elm compiler was the first example of of kind of what GitHub's doing right now with Copilot, right? Where there's that actual computational assistant going through and helping you as you're writing your code. It's not like giving you code snippets or anything, but it's saying this you've made a, a mistake here. It's probably this. Or you're using a syntax here that you should look at this documentation, like you were saying. Yeah, I think, I guess a big difference there is um, like the Elm compiler is doing it sort of based on handwritten heuristics as opposed to machine learning. Right. Um, yeah. Which actually, I, I haven't asked Evan about um, Copilot in particular, but I can guess what his response would be. So he actually, he did an internship working at Google on Gmail. And in particular, um, some of the stuff he was working on, like this is early on, he was like writing C and stuff before he made Elm. Um, and, uh, and I remember him telling me about uh, one of the experiences he had that, that was sort of surprising to him was 
how they did their spam filtering. And he kind of expected that there would be a lot of like machine learning or AI, like really like, you know, neural network type stuff to figure out like how to classify something as spam. And apparently they had tried that, but what they found was much more effective was just a couple of handwritten heuristics. <laughs> and th those were like really outperforming. Maybe that won't be true forever. Maybe someday, um, you know, they, they'll end up finding machine learning algorithms that that outperform handwritten heuristics. Um, maybe that's already true because that was a number of years ago. Uh, but I always thought that was kind of funny that, you know, like even at Google, even with something as big as like Gmail spam filtering, it apparently was uh, <laughs> more effective to use handwritten heuristics. And I think like the part of the reason that Elm's compiler does feel as nice as it is, is that uh, it does feel like, like often that when I read an error message, it feels like, wow, this is almost like it was handwritten for the exact scenario that I'm finding myself in. In a lot of cases, it kind of was. <laughs> it's just that that one scenario wasn't as you know specific to me as I kind of would have guessed. Yeah, one one of the other benefits I I find of Elm that you talk about often in uh, your talks is the no runtime errors. Oh um, yeah, I, I I've mentioned that to people on occasion. They're like, what? But no, that doesn't work. How does, <laughs> how does that make sense? It's like, no, it's just there's no runtime errors. The, the compiler is able to direct you in the right way so that you're not going to cause those. And I think that's one of the most amazing features, especially considering it compiles to JavaScript and runs in the browser. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's true. I, I, I definitely now take that for granted. Um, because yeah, I mean, like if you if you run like I, I remember in the old days when I used JavaScript, it would crash all the time. I mean, I would get you know undefined is not a function or this or that. Um, uh, I, I would always be bringing up the browser console in order to see like what's the stack trace in there. Um, with Elm, I just don't. I mean, if I do bring up the browser console, it's because I logged something to it and I want to see what the log output was. But that's like really the only scenario. Um, or I guess if there's some third party JavaScript that I'm running on the page, then maybe that'll crash. That, that definitely happens. Um, but that's really it. Um, I mean, Elm code, yeah, if it compiles, you, you can expect it not to crash. Now, I don't want to say it's impossible. Like, it definitely is literally possible for um, Elm code to crash. Uh, we did have one time, so uh, we've had, you know, uh, like an error logging service running on our website since, you know, before I joined the company in like 2013. Um, and, uh, until I think the first time that we had, you're right, we had Elm running in production for two years before we saw our first runtime exception logged in production. And it was due to something that was ultimately removed from the language in the next release <laughs> language. So it wouldn't have even been possible today. Um, and we haven't seen any since then. So uh, yeah, I mean, honestly, like we, we actually have talked about like, do we still want um, this error logging in on the JavaScript side because it's really just all noise now. Like it's all just stuff that's caused by like third-party browser extensions crashing right, and stuff right. like that. Like in the end user's machine, it's like we can't do anything Think, about things this, you can't you know? control. Yeah, right. It's 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 kind of frustrating. Um, but at the end of the day, we do still do we do still use some third-party JavaScript for like some WYSIWYG editors and stuff, and those actually legitimately can get crashes. So we do want to find out about those. Um, but I mean, it's it, the signal to noise ratio is pretty bad now that we have Elm on our front. <laughs> yeah, in in my development experience on that on that game, for example, I've never had any runtime exceptions. Still, the the closest I had to an error was during development, and I think it was a, a Stack Overflow. I don't know if I was just like calling a re recursive function too many times, but yeah, it, that, well, that's, that's the only thing I've been right. able to do.
Yeah, if, if you have like a function that calls itself forever, then yeah, it can stack overflow. That's one of the few examples of how you can successfully crash an L program. Right. Um, and there's no fixing that, but uh, in a Turing complete language, at least. Um, right. I uh, I remember at the first couple Elm conferences, um, I used to, because back then it was like a lot less common for people to be using Elm at work. Now it's like, it's a lot more common. It's still, you know, a very distant, you know, uh, second to TypeScript, uh, at least on the recent, the most recent state of JS survey, it was like the most, according to survey respondents, um, the most common compile to JS language being used was of course TypeScript. Second most was Elm, um, but there was a big gap between them. Obviously, like TypeScript is way, way more popular than Elm, um, and uh, that makes sense because it's you know it's just JavaScript, so people right. sort of already know you know all of it except for the type checking part. Uh, whereas Elm's a totally different language. Um, but of course, if you want to get outsized benefits, you kind of have to be like significantly different. It would be weird if you could just get a huge amount of benefits without having a different language. Um, I mean, I guess it'd be convenient, but uh, I, don't, I don't really know how that's how that would be not, possible. Not quite so feasible, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I always used to ask people, uh, you know, when, especially when Elm was only being used by sort of a handful of companies, like, hey, uh, has anyone here at this conference, um, like, at the, like the speaker dinner, for example, uh, is anyone using Elm at work, like in production? And, you know, early on, like half the hands would go up, and now it's just like every hand goes up. But, but back then, it was like, you know, half the hands would go up. And I'd be like, oh, that's very exciting. Now, have any of you gotten any runtime exceptions in production? And no hands would go up. <laughs> and and I would just keep asking that, like, you know, the first couple of years until eventually I just, I was like, all right, well, I, I know what the answers are. So <laughs> I guess I don't need to keep asking this. It's not the novelty wore off. But yeah, it's just, that's normal. It's normal that you your Elm programs never crash in practice. Um, even though it's theoretically possible, it's just like, it's, it's so rare that um, it, it, for all practical purposes, you just everybody just assumes it's never going to happen and and really doesn't get burned by that. Right. I th and one last feature of Elm I want to talk about is the the lack of null. Um, sometimes when I'm when again when I'm talking to people about Elm, I'm saying there's there's no null. Right. How do you, but what do you do? I mean, you just, <laughs> you just default values. You know, there's there's solutions around it that are more type safe and there's they're more consistent so your application knows what to do with that. You're never going to run, so, so that you don't run into the runtime errors, like undefined is not a function. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the short answer is you have uh, wrapper types that say like, you know, by default, this is like a string, but then you can have a thing called a maybe string, which is basically saying like this either is a string or there is no string here. And the important difference there being that the compiler won't let you forget to handle both of those possibilities when you want to sort of unwrap it and say like, okay, I want to, I, you know, I've been storing this maybe string in my user, for example, like maybe they only optionally have an email address. You'd store that as a maybe string is a common example people bring up. Um, you know, that travels around with with uh, the, the user record. And then eventually you say, okay, I want to, I want to get uh, the user's email address and I want to print it to the screen. At that point, you would say you would have to deal with the fact that it's a maybe string and say, okay, here's what I want to do if there is a string in there, and here's what I want to do if there's not a string in there. So uh, it's like some programming languages have like a first class concept of nullable types, and they'll say like, um, you know, this is a nullable string. And uh, again, some of those languages will require that if you want to actually treat that as a normal string, first you have to do an if on it to say like check to see if it's null. And that's another way of doing the same thing, at least assuming that the language is extremely strict about that and never lets you accidentally mess that up, which depending on which language it is, they may or may not be uh, like uh, strict about that. But yeah, Elm is very consistent about this. It's like, 
if you want to have if you're going to have a maybe string, then uh, you know you have to handle it later. Um, and there are of course various functions that will return a maybe this or that. Like for example, if you try to get an element out of a list, uh, which is kind of like Elm's equivalent of uh, like what you'd use in JavaScript as an array, um, then what you get back is always a maybe value. So you 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 know it sort of is baked into the API that you. Uh, you get back this value that might be there or might not, depending on whether it was actually present in the list. Right. One of the things that that I really like about that concept in particular is I can I can still apply it in all these other languages that I'm using. Like JavaScript is is the big one that I use at work. Uh, I can still apply the same concepts. I just have to keep it in my head instead of the compiler keeping it on the computer. Yeah. So I, I guess like one of the ways you could think of Elm is it's like there's a lot of really good ideas and really good practices that you totally can use in JavaScript or in TypeScript with a lot of discipline, but it's way better if you don't have to use discipline at all and just have it like the language is built around these good ideas instead of being something that you can sort of like opt into and then enforce yourself using your brain instead of just delegating all that enforcement to the system. Um, there's even more benefits beyond that, but um, that's like, you know, sometimes I, I get the impression that a question that people have that's sort of like at the edge of their minds is like, okay, but I hear what you're saying, but like I could just get this from JavaScript. Or I could just get this from TypeScript, you know, just using these techniques and then, you know, it's going to be about the same, right? But I always encourage people who think that it's going to be about the same to find someone who's done, you know, a significant amount of Elm and a significant amount of TypeScript and ask them what they think and see if they think it's about the same. Um, just you know, be prepared for a um, <laughs> a response that's like pretty uh, exaggerated. I don't know, not exaggerated is the wrong word. Like a pretty animated response. Yeah. Um, like no, 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 no. You know that that type of. <laughs> um, it doesn't feel the same if you if you've actually like given both of them a you know a, a significant try. Right. Yeah. I, I I try to use TypeScript myself as much as possible in JavaScript because I sure. like those the types from Elm and I like the. With the TypeScript compiler, it gives some of the same kinds of suggestions that the the Elm compiler will do. That you should check, you know, more more of your cases. Yeah, but it's not going to enforce it. It's not going to make sure that you do everything right. It's not going to verify that, like using an HTTP request, for example. You make an HTTP request, you convert that to an object. You can say that it's a certain object. You could say it's a user. Who knows? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and and that's one of the things that Elm really enforces is you always know what kind of type it is. The compiler always knows what type it is. And and you're able to to work things through. So I, I when I'm using TypeScript, I'm like, I need to think about this like Elm, but I can't trust the compiler. I, it, it doesn't yeah. go that far. Well, and, and one of the biggest ways this comes up is of course in the ecosystem, because when you have the NPM ecosystem, I mean, it's the biggest ecosystem in the world. There's no there's no question that it's the number one champ of most available libraries, you know, the, the most stuff you can get off the shelf um, of any programming language, but it's all written in JavaScript. When things are written in TypeScript, they're not necessarily following the conventions you would like them to follow as far as like how the types are done. They're maybe using any in various places. Um, Sometimes they may be using it appropriately, maybe not. Um, whereas in the Elm ecosystem, yeah, it's a lot smaller, granted. But every single package is 100%, like all the types are perfect. Like they're all correct. None of them are ever wrong, ever, for any reason in any way at all. It's just not possible. Like the, the compiler won't let you publish <laughs> to, the, to the package repo unless all the types you know checked out and 
uh, and there's no there's no any there's no escape hatches that let you say like oh compiler trust me I I'm gonna make this be whatever this other type than what you think it is the compiler's like nope it's got to be the type that I think it is and the result of this oh yeah and, and then there's one other thing about the package ecosystem that I love and wish every language had um, which is uh, semantic versioning is actually enforced like if I if I make a change to my like let's say I, I delete an argument from one of my public functions and I try to publish that as a minor change, it'll reject it and say, no, no, you you made a breaking change to your public API. You have to bump the major version number. That's not optional. Um, and as a result of this, uh, whenever I'm upgrading my Elm packages, I upgrade minor versions without even thinking about it and just expect that it's just going to compile again. Um, upgrading packages in Elm just I don't know. It just it, it just works. Uh, like I know there's this meme of like when you come back to a JavaScript project after like six months and you try to update your dependencies, just expect to be in for some pain because a lot of stuff's just going to be breaking. The meme is the opposite in Elm. You just come back and you're like, oh, what if there's new versions of these things? Update them. Neat. Okay. And now it just works. It's still right. It still runs. Um, and I guess it maybe runs faster, maybe with fewer bugs. I don't know. It depends on what the updates were. But um, like you can just do that and it's fine. Uh, I also don't have to deal with all the like, you know, vulnerability warnings, like all like the NPM audit things that are like all these like spurious errors. I still come across these because I have some command line tools like for Elm written in, in Node. Um, but I, I, I'm like aware of this. Like there was an article um, recently from. Dan Abramov like uh, complaining about I, he had a reasonable you know complaint that like there's a lot of false positives with npm audit where it's talking about like you're gonna get a DDoS attack on this thing that's not even like used in a server like what um, uh, again not something that happens in Elm there just is no equivalent of that it doesn't complain about those things um, and I don't know it's just uh, the the package ecosystem I even though it's a lot smaller than the npm one it's still I mean got a lot of stuff in it. And you know, we, we tend to use most things off the shelf uh, at work um, from the, uh, the Elm package ecosystem. But the, the experience of using it is just so much nicer <laughs> than using NPM uh, when it comes to like installing or upgrading or just the overall reliability or quality of the, the packages or the documentation. Um, like it, it, it makes you, you have to have some documentation for every single function uh, it, you know, that you expose. Um, if you want to have no documentation, you have to at least like make a comment saying, you know, no documentation. Um, it's just, it's just really nice. And I think that's, that's a credit to like, not just the, the way that the language is set up, but also to the, the community members who are, you know, creating all those packages. I think there's like a lot of, um, you know, Elm is definitely a smaller community, but there's a lot of pride in like wanting to make things really nice and like a lot of cultural momentum around like, Oh, we, we should have things be nice. Like there's that mantra of like, it's not done until the docs are great. You know, uh, it's not, not every single package of course, but, um, all of the nicest, like, uh, you know, front end tools that I've used in terms of documentation have like consistently been coming from like Elm rather than NPM. Um, at least in my experience. Right. Yeah. I've, I've had really good experience with, uh, bringing in packages and being able to read documentation as well. Uh, I just, I just love the Elm ecosystem so much, and I, I wish I could live more of my life in it. You know. Yeah, I, I, I realize this is a pretty one-sided interview because we're both big Elm fans. Uh, yeah. I almost feel like we should have some like, could could we find a hater who's like? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, well, let me ask you this then. Uh, what are 
in in your view, granted, you are a big fan of Elm and you use it at yeah. work every day. <laughs> what are what are some of the things that you dislike about Elm or you think could still be improved in either the language or the ecosystem? Um, well, I'll give a cop out answer and then I'll give a real answer. Uh, so the cop out answer is that it's it's scoped to the front end. Like Elm is a is a language that you can use to build front end web applications, and that's basically what it focuses on. Um, like if you want to use it to like build a server, you basically can't. Uh, if you want to use it to build a command line app, uh, you can kind of like hack it together, but it's not it's not really a thing. Um, so it's really successfully focused on one domain. But if you you know want that kind of experience in other domains, um, there's not really a way to get it, at least not right now. Um, I'm working on another project that aims to uh, given Elm-like experience in other domains, but that's a separate topic. Um, but uh, so as far as like, um, but that's, like I said, that's kind of a cop-out answer is like, I, I like it, I wish I could use it in more places, which is true, but not really what the, the, the point of the question is. The point of the question would be like, what are some uh, ways that like Elm could improve? Um, so a couple of things come to mind. Um, so one thing is that, uh, and this is like really kind of, I don't know, uh, inside baseball nitpicking a little bit. Um, but basically, so there's a, a type called a dictionary in Elm, uh, which is like corresponds to a map in JavaScript. And uh, maybe set is actually an easier example because they both have the same thing. Uh, so you can only put certain types into sets in Elm. Um, the, the types have to be comparable. So there's only certain types are comparable, like numbers are comparable. You can look at them and say which one's bigger or smaller than the other one. Strings are comparable. Um, lists of strings are comparable. Lists of records of et cetera are comparable. But in particular, if you, if you make custom types, like your own type, uh, those are not comparable. And uh, there's no way to make them comparable, which means that anytime I make a custom type, which is something that I do all the time because custom types are a really great feature of Elm, um, I can't put them in a set and I also can't use them as keys in a dictionary. Um, there are various ways that this could be solved um, in theory, but because they have some sort of like language design implications, um, there, there isn't currently a solution for that. And uh, that bugs me. I wish that there were a solution for that. Um, there are some workarounds that people have made, like uh, there's a uh, a package called a social list, which is uh, short for association list. Basically, as it's a drop-in replacement for dictionary, which has worse performance because it doesn't use the comparable thing, but it does let you use custom types for keys. Um, that's a totally reasonable solution because in practice, most people don't actually use like put enough things in a dictionary anyway for that to for the performance difference to be noticeable. Um, but again, I, I would still rather just be able to use the one that's in the standard library with custom types. Um, and it bugs me that I can't. Um, so that would be one example of, of something that I wish were better. Um, another thing uh, that I kind of wish in an, uh, I, maybe a best way to say this is I wish for it on behalf of other people. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't personally use this, but um, it would be really cool if Elm compiled to WebAssembly in addition to JavaScript. Um, there's no technical reason that it can't. In fact, it's been designed uh, so that it could compile to WebAssembly instead of JavaScript or in addition to JavaScript um, if desired. Uh, so far, there hasn't been enough demand for that to be a viable project. But I know a couple of people who are doing things like with um, physics and 3D rendering with Elm in the browser. And they are actually performance constrained by like CPU stuff. And they could definitely benefit from um, like getting the performance boost of Elm compiling to WebAssembly. So I think that would be really cool, even though I understand why it's not a justifiable project to work on right now. Um, I, I still think it would be really cool for, just for them. 
Yeah, I, I've been interested in Elm targeting WebAssembly myself, just because I saw the, the discussion about it and how Elm was originally designed with that as something to do in the future, but not anything to do right now. Yeah, um, right. Like there, there were some decision points where it's like, well, this could be more strictly coupled to JavaScript, which would allow for this, but that would mean that in the future, Elm couldn't target WebAssembly. And the decision was, let's keep that door open so that someday we can, not only can we target WebAssembly, but in fact, the entire package ecosystem would keep working. And like you could use all the packages that you already have on either JavaScript or WebAssembly with zero problems. Um, that's the goal uh, someday, but you know, there's a question, or at least like being able to possibly do that is the goal. Um, uh, whether or not it will ever necessarily make sense. Cause I mean, Elms had a number of uh, releases that were focused on runtime performance improvements. Um, and over the years, it's become increasingly uh, clear that um, people think it's fast enough because I mean, it's like already faster than, you know, pretty much all the alternatives uh, in, in most of the metrics. Um, and runtime performance doesn't seem to be a big thing that people are really interested in improving um, as far as like front-end web development goes. Right. Uh, that does remind me of another uh, thing that we hadn't talked about, which is um, compiled asset size. Uh, it's another oh, thing yes. that Elm's really good at. <laughs> um, so I did a, a comparison uh, a couple of years ago. I, I wrote a blog post about this. Um, so there's this app called the Real World app, and it's kind of like to do MVCs, like bigger cousin. And it's basically uh, some people wrote a spec for an um, application. They provide like various different backends and you can make various different front ends. And the purpose of this is to show off, like here's the same front end built using different technologies. Um, so I built one of these it's in Elm. It's like 4,000 lines of code. So it's it's not trivial, but it's also you know not a particularly big app. Um, right. It's basically like a medium clone. You can like write posts, you can comment on posts, you can starve people, you can follow people, get a feed and this and that. Um, so uh, what was really cool about this was that um, it gave us an opportunity to see for a non-trivial app, like how big is the compiled asset size? And one of the cool results that came out of that was seeing that the, um, the Elm one, the entire application uh, after like uh, compiled, minified, gzipped, um, was 29 kilobytes, which is actually less than just React with zero application. Um, oh, this wow. is like the entire application was smaller than React with no application code at all, um, which is cool. I didn't know that was going to happen, but um, so the way that Elm's able to do this uh, is, and this is with a, like also using a couple of you know third-party libraries as well. Um, Elm's able to do really really good uh, dead code elimination because it's it's like fully aware of like all the Elm functions and uh, and because they're all pure functions, there's no possibility that it's like, oh, well maybe this function, you know, needs to get run or like maybe this code needs to get initialized on startup or something like that. It's like, nope, this is all, everything's immutable. Everything's uh, pure functions. So if it's not referenced in this code path, it's dead code and we can just leave it out of the bundle. Um, so uh, there was a blog post on uh, elmlang.org about like when that release came out uh, that, that introduced that. And yeah, it was um, that was something that uh, we'd heard was like a lot more important to people than um, runtime performance was like improving um, compiled asset size. Uh, so if you need to run, um, uh, you know, like if your like mobile applications are really important, for whatever reason you wanna have uh, really small compiled assets, that's also something that Elm's good for. That's awesome. So we, we've talked a little bit about, you know, the different releases of Elm and features that have come out. What does the roadmap look like 
for, for Elm going forward? I think right now we're on 0.19.1, if I remember correctly. Yes. Uh, what, is there going to be an 0.19.2? Are we going to go to 0.20? Uh, I'm going to ask the, the question that is typically asked is when are we going to get to 1.0? Although I've heard <laughs> the answer before. It's more to ask it so you can repeat the answer. Sure, yeah. So we can talk about all those. Um, so uh, I'm not sure whether the next one would be 0.19.2 or um, 0.20. Uh, there are a couple of factors that would go into that. Um, so one is, uh, well, so basically the main thing that Evan's working on right now is a project that he has been multiple years in the making, um, which I have been asked not to talk about publicly yet uh, because it's a very ambitious project, which is very cool. Um, one thing I can say about it is that it would not result in any like significant breaking language changes. Um, so it's not something that people should be like worried about is like gonna, gonna pull the rug out from under them. Um, it would be a supplemental thing. Like if, if it ends up uh, coming to fruition, then it'll just be like, wow, this is really, really cool. And some people will think it's awesome and wanna use it. And others might be like, eh, I'll just keep using Elm the way I have been using it. And that'll also be fine. Um, uh, the, um, the question of like whether the next release would be a 19.2 or a, a .20, um, I think would mainly uh, come down to whether it made sense to batch any breaking changes in with just like bug fixes, performance improvements, the usual stuff. Um, and I think a lot of that will come down to uh, this other project that, that is unnamed at present. Um, well, it has a working name, but yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, so I'm not. I'm honestly not sure which of those two would be next. Um, part of the reason that uh, Evan's been working on this big, like, ambitious uh, other project um, that uh, is not like a normal Elm release uh, is that uh, basically, as of like 0.19.1, the language has become pretty stable and like pretty reliable. And uh, mainly, like, what's sort of like left to do? Like, the there's sort of diminishing returns on like. Uh, his time like being put into that type of stuff. Like, I mean, I mentioned like the couple of things that, uh, you know, I would like to see uh, happen in Elm, like the the comparable thing, like that would be nice to fix, but like there's a perfectly fine workaround. It's like kind of a thorn in my side, but it's like, doesn't really come up that often because we can just use a socialist. It's like, it's really not a big deal. It's not like it needs a big, especially given that, you know, there's, there's non-trivial language like design work that would need to go into a proper fix to that. Um, personally, I would much rather Evan be working on something that's like a lot more ambitious than that, um, which is what he's doing. Um, and so, uh, you know, like give, with all that in mind, like most people seem to be quite happy with 0.19.1 as far as like performance, as far as compiled asset size, as far as like how helpful the compiler is. Um, and so a lot of the advancements in Elm in the past couple of years have just been from, you know, community stuff. Uh, like Elm Review has been getting a lot, a lot more press in the last couple of years. Like it's gotten a lot more capabilities. This is like Elm's like, I don't know, super linter maybe is a, <laughs> is a good term for it. Um, uh, Yarun just did some blogging about some of the design decisions behind that, which I really enjoyed. Um, uh, like the Elm language server has gotten a lot of love, um, a lot of improvements. Um, there's just a lot of, a lot of cool projects like Elm pages for like, uh, you know, static site rendering, um, Elm UI, like still the nicest, uh, uh, LMUI, the, the elevator pitch for that is like, what if you could make front ends without doing any CSS and you just had a totally different layout system that was designed from scratch um, 
to be really, really nice and had nothing to do with CSS at all. Uh, that's Elm UI. And I think it, you just went over a number of people to try out Elm right there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, like Elm UI is beloved. I mean, it's really, really, really popular um, and, and deservedly so because it's turns out it, it's possible to have a much nicer experience making UIs than, uh, than if you're using uh, CSS, um, which was really not designed for making applications in the first place. So it, it would be weird if CSS by sheer coincidence turned out to be good for not only what it was originally designed for, but also for building application UIs, but as it turns out, it's not. Um, but Elm UI actually was designed for building user interfaces. So uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's really nice. It has um, some benefits there from that. For sure, yeah. I mean, that was the whole point of the project. Um, yeah. But yeah, it like compiles to CSS, which is how it's able to be performant. But um, anyway, uh, yeah, so that's that's kind of where a lot of the like, you know, when I look at like what's great about Elm today versus like two years ago, I mean, those are the things that come first to mind because like, you know, the last compiler release was 0.19.1, but um, but there's just been like lots going on in the community, like, you know, outside of it's like, the, the language is a lot more than just the compiler, obviously. Um, so there's plenty of stuff to be excited about. And uh, uh, hopefully this this other project will, uh, I, yeah, I, I'm trying not to hype it up too much for that because I don't want to talk about it, but um, it's very exciting. <laughs> If you're ready for Elm on quantum computers, uh, just wait for Evan to release his release. Um, so, so considering that the API is fairly stable and mature at this point, um, what are the odds that the next release is 1.0? Uh, I know for a long time it was because Elm was an experiment in progress and there was yeah. continued iteration. It wasn't ready. Um, at this point, is, is there kind of a consensus that it is ready? Uh, could it move I... to 1.0 at its next release? Well, um, so there's there's two main criteria uh, that Evans talked about in the past for like 1.0. So one is it's ready for enterprise, meaning like uh, enterprise users um, who expect like a certain level of stability over a certain period of time um, could reasonably adopt it and like not feel that they got burned by it. So you look at a language like Java, for example, um, like Java has some some pretty intense backwards compatibility guarantees, uh, like between one release of the JVM and the next. That's a language that's like very you know enterprise focused. Um, uh, meanwhile, you know Elm has had like you know breaking changes of varying degrees of seriousness. Um, you know over the years, uh, the biggest one by far was 0.17, which was I think two dot sorry um, was in twenty fifteen maybe, um, and other. Uh, other subsequent releases have been a lot less serious for the most part, although some of them have had um, breaking changes, which for the most part impacted like a very small subset of uh, Elm users uh, at all uh, or, or more than a little bit. But um, some people, depending on how they were using the language before and whether they were using features that were labeled as explicitly unsupported, uh, may have felt that pain a lot more than others. Um, so uh, there are still some things which are likely to need changing in some form. Like the comparable thing that I mentioned, it's not clear how that could get resolved, but or, or it's not clear which way that should get resolved, but a breaking language change is definitely a possibility there. Um, so knowing that, uh, I think Evan would feel most comfortable saying that Elm is 1.0 when he's like, okay, I don't see, I, I don't know about any breaking changes that we would potentially make to the language um, for the foreseeable future, such that we could make really strong backwards compatibility guarantees like Java, for example, does um, for enterprise users. And 
uh, I don't think that's true yet. I think there are still potentially like, you know, even if they might feel pretty minor, um, the difference between like, you know, having that like breakage and not having it at all, even if it's something that, you know, everyone can resolve on their own pretty quickly um, means a lot more to like enterprise users, for example, um, than it does to everybody else. And everybody else, I mean, there's thousands of companies using Elm today, you know, even though it's an 0.19, you know, release, um, I still consider it to be much more reliable than, you know, TypeScript, React, you know, what have you. Um, and, and really to the point where I would not actually consider using those anymore for the rest of my career because the, the gap is just so big. Um, but, uh, but I understand that like, and I, I've worked at big companies that, you know, like I've done the enterprise Java thing. There's just a different mindset there. Um, so uh, I, 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 I think that's a reasonable stance to take. That makes a lot of sense. And going as, as I'm a view developer right now, going through the 3.0 migration uh, I can definitely respect that wanting to make sure that it's ready for enterprise and that there's going to be that support uh, long-term. Uh, I, I see what the Vue core team is having to go through with continuing to support new features into Vue with uh, upcoming release, I think it's 2.7, mm -hmm. uh, to support things like the composition API in an IE-compatible version of the, the framework. So I, I can t definitely respect that. I was just... Yeah, it's exciting. Yeah. It, you know, 1.0 would be an exciting date. Uh, yeah, and looking forward to it when it does. Come be a huge time. milestone for sure. Oh yeah. Uh, so one final question is: We're getting close to time. If I so I've been listening to this episode. I've heard all the great things about Elm, and I'm ready to dive in. Uh, but I'm I'm coming specifically from JavaScript, or some other object-oriented language, and I'm wanting to develop on the on the web. What's the best place to get started? How how could I start? just diving into Elm and writing some code. Yep, so I, I always first recommend the official guide. Uh, it's free, it's really great, uh, elmlang.org. Um, there's a link to it at the top. Um, you can just start reading right now um, and, and learn the language that way. Uh, I feel though that I'm being led in a certain direction, which is I should, I should maybe recommend also uh, a, a resource that you might have a physical copy of, <laughs> uh, Element Action, which I wrote. <laughs> uh, and yeah, that, that's the exact audience of the book is um, uh, <laughs> uh, JavaScript developers. Like, um, if you know JavaScript and you don't know anything about Elm, you don't know anything about functional programming, the book doesn't assume any of that. All it assumes is that you know some JavaScript. Um, and to be honest, even if you don't know JavaScript, but you know another programming language, you'll probably still be able to follow pretty much all of it except for the JavaScript interop chapter. Because um, I'm really trying to just come at it from the perspective of like, I'm not going to explain like what if is, you know, you probably know how that works. Um, but as long as you, you're familiar with programming, I'm just going to start from like, hey, you don't know any Elm. I'm going to teach you how to, uh, to make an application with Elm. And basically the format of the book is chapter one is kind of like basic syntax and stuff like that. But starting with chapter two, um, we're just basically building an application. And it, it sort of follows this format where it's like pretends that you have a manager who's like assigning you feature requests for this application. You start off by like, building your first page. And then, you know, the next chapter you add some stuff to it. The next chapter you add some stuff to it. And each chapter you get like a new feature request from your manager. Um, and then you, over the course of the chapter, implement it while also learning the techniques you would need to, to uh, you, uh, learn in order to implement it. So it's, you know, it feels very focused on like, you know, practicalities and like uh, trying to, you know, uh, mimic like how you would actually like build something in, in real life in Elm. So um, you also sort of get that refactoring experience along the way because you're building up this code base and you also get to change it and go back and like revise some things over the course of the book. Um, 
So, uh, you know, it's, if that's you, uh, you're, you're exactly the, the person I wrote the book for. Um, if, if books are not so much your thing, I also have done uh, two courses on front-end masters um, uh, for Elm. So one is Introduction to Elm, which is, as you might expect, similar audience. You know, it's, it's a different format than the book. It's different material, um, but it's, you know, covers the same concepts, uh, just in a different way. Um, and then there's also an advanced Elm course, uh, which is sort of like assumes that you've been using Elm for several months and uh, goes into a lot more depth about things uh, if you're interested in that. Um, so yeah, uh, there's also like Elm Slack is a really great resource. Um, there's a, a link uh, on the Elm uh, homepage to community, which has links to Elm Slack and um, discourse and uh, lots of super helpful, friendly people. Um, like the beginners channel on Elm Slack is just like, you know, you ask a question and, and multiple people will be there to, to help you out with that. Um, just a, a really lovely group of people. Excellent, thank you. And very glad that you were able to join us today. This was a great episode. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. That's it for today. Thanks for listening to the Modern Web Podcast uh, on Elm with Richard Feldman. As always, the conversation does not stop here. Uh, Richard, where can people find you on Twitter? Uh, so I'm, I'm at uh, twitter.com slash RT Feldman. And also, like I mentioned previously, uh, my company, No Red Ink, we're hiring. Uh, so if you're interested in Elm, we don't require any past Elm experience. So uh, noredink.com slash jobs. Excellent. Thank you. You can find me online at Lindsay K. Wardell on Twitter. As for the podcast, you can find us online at modern.web, that's modern.web.com, or on Twitter at modern.web, that's M-O-D-E-R-N-D-O-T-W-E-B. As always, thanks as well to our sponsor, Kendo React, and we'll see you all next time. podcast is sponsored by this.labs, a framework agnostic consultancy that specializes in JavaScript. You can find them at this.co slash labs. That's T-H-I-S-D-O-T dot C-O slash labs. Come on, let's go, cause we got a show for you.